Hello, my name is Blaze Bailey. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Dan Lorenzo from Hades, nonfiction, The Cursed, and my horrible solo music. You listen to my boy Victor on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiske talking, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attack. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on VH1 Classic, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Crank it. Hey, everybody, this is your big daddy-o, Gene Hoagland, who has played with your favorite metal bands, and you are listening to Mars Attacks Radio. This is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is John Leon from White Wizard, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. It's 79, we were left for dead, a new movement was born. Neil K, save the day, yeah, guitars in a crazy swarm. Lightning strikes, same place, twice it's coming back again. The awful quick to make your ear ache, now quit the answer's here. Let's go! One and all to episode 40 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I am your host, Victor. And today we have a very special interview with John Leone from White Wizard. There are a lot of things that have been said regarding John, regarding White Wizard. And I've been after speaking to John for a while because I wanted to clear things up. Uh, for those of you that have been keeping track of the show, you know that I've talked to James Luna, former White Wizard lead singer, currently of Holy Grail, James J. LaRue, who's currently the guitarist in Vindicator, and Eric Klubert, who's currently in the band Gypsy Hawk. I've spoken to them on several occasions, and um, outside of the one interview with Eric, it's all been post White Wizard, and there's actually an interview coming up in a few weeks uh, that will be released with Eric Kluber and Eric Harris from Gypsy Hawk. And um, I just want to mention one thing. I get along great with everyone that's been within the band, and I'm actually missing Peter Ellis. I apologize. Peter Ellis, who now is in Monument. Um, I get along with everyone. Within the band, I actually have to say that outside of Dan Lorenzo, I don't think that another uh, band or members, former members of a band, have um, been better at keeping in contact with me or you know sending me information regarding their respective bands. Even John, John, after even before we were able to set up the interview and after. He was in constant contact with me. Um, John is part of, and actually everyone outside of Luna is part of the um, 
uh, classic albums column, submitting their comments for the various albums that uh, that I sent along to them, and and outside of that, you know, they frequently send me emails and vice versa. And again, I get along great with everyone. And the idea here wasn't to do a witch hunt, um, you know, to go after John and you know call him out on things. And and there are things that I bring up, and there are things that he also discusses without me needing to bring them up regarding the band. And there's an important thing that he says where um, he mentions that, you know, he's telling his side of things. You're able to listen to, you know, other people discuss their side of things as well in in the other interviews. If you haven't heard them, just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com and just search for the various interviews. If not, they're up on iTunes as well. Uh, on the website, you can stream them or you can download them, whichever works best for you. But, you know, this is John's side of things. Uh, I really felt that it was important to get his side of things out there. And, you know, uh, you guys decide um, what, you know, what what's going on with with who's telling the truth, who isn't. You know, I don't know. I'm I'm not one here to say that it's 100% one person, it's 100% another person. Uh, I'm just trying to bring you some interesting interviews, and um, and I think this is that. This this interview was done in several parts uh, due to dropout in internet at the time when I conducted the original interview. Also due to the fact that um, uh, we've been away for a little bit here. Uh, I'm a first-time parent. Uh, that put things on hold for about a month. So in the meantime, there's a whole other dilemma that took place with White Wizard, um, which I don't want to get into right now uh, because that'll be part of the interview. Uh, so essentially there's three different segments. Two of them are going to be coupled together, and then there's going to be a third. In between, what what I want to do is play music from... White Wizard, and um, I also want to debut some music from Peter Ellis's new band. Uh, the name of the ga- uh, the ba- excuse me, the name of the band once again is Monument. This is these are just demos, okay? Uh, these aren't the finished product. He just finished signing a record deal, and uh, there should be a new album, a full album out shortly. I only have three tracks, so I'm going to play uh, one of those tracks. Uh, actually, we'll do that right now, and we'll come back uh, and discuss some other things before jumping into the John Leon interview.
solo. There you go, a little Midnight Queen by Monument, the new band that former White Wizard lead singer Peter Ellis is in. Um, I have all of Flying Tigers. Eric was kind enough to send MP3 downloads a little earlier this week. And John Leon was actually uh, nice enough to send me the booklet as well in, in PDF format. So, uh, you know, he wanted me to get a good grasp of what the album is like. And I have to tell you, I really enjoy the album. I've been a fan of theirs, um, and and this is uh, thanks in part to Eric Kluber, because once he joined the band and um, he was interviewed on Talking Metal, it really got my attention and and got me over to purchasing the High Speed GTO EP, and uh, and I've enjoyed everything that the band has put out. That EP, Over the Top, the Shooting Star single with Peter Ellis, and um, and this new album, Flying Tigers. Um, what to say about Flying Tigers? Uh, well, let me play a track off of Flying Tigers for you. This is called West L.A. Night. <laughs>
West, L.A. Knights coming off of Flying Tigers by White Wizard. The album, again, I'm a fan of the band. I'm a fan of, and I think it's very apparent with this album, of John Leon's songwriting. Um, you can say what you want about someone personally, but in the end, you know, I've had people discuss how they don't like a band because someone's a jerk or someone's not a jerk or because someone's sexual orientation or even the color of their skin. But in the end, if a song kicks ass, I mean, all of that to me is irrelevant. And um, the album is really good. The album really showcases uh, John Leon's songwriting. The first half of the album is really, um, how do I put this? It's, I won't say that every single song sounds like that, but it's in that vein, almost like a um, somewhere in time type Iron Maiden mixed in with some, you know, some Defenders of the Faith Priest and some Megadeth. Uh, really, those are the three bands that come to mind when I listen to this album. Now, I mentioned before that John Leon is part of the Classic Albums column. One of the things that he pointed out to me was that his favorite uh, album, possibly of all time, but from Maiden, is Peace of Mind. And the second half of the album really reflects that. Uh, there's definitely a proggy feel to it. There's definitely a mix between Maiden, Rush, and once again, Megadeth. There's some different transitions that are that are done in the songs that, you know, John sounds a lot like a mix between Steve Harris and Dave Ellison. It's it's really cool. And you know, once again, I think he to a credit to John, and I'm not trying to kiss his ass here, um, but he seems to always surround himself with really good singers. Again, Wyatt is back for this album. Um, and the thing is, Wyatt once again shines on this album, just like Over the Top. If, if you're going to listen to this album and say, you know, what's the one thing that stands out? It is Wyatt once again. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there's very strong songwriting there. There isn't that same killer shredder aspect that Eric Kluber and James J. LaRue brought into the fold on the other two uh, albums. But again, I'm not sure that it's necessary. Would that aspect have propelled this album that much further? Maybe. But the album isn't bad. I mean, I, th I think it's a really good transition for the band. And once it comes out on September 19th, we're, you know, more than a, uh, we're, we're practically a month and a half ahead of ourselves here uh, with this interview. But the pre-order is there, and I wanted to make sure that enough people were pushed towards this pre-order. And you can listen to snippets of all the songs right there on iTunes. Um, the album, if you're a fan of the band, if you're a fan of Cauldron, if you're a fan of Maiden, dare I say that the White Wizard albums... Uh, similar to what I've said uh, with Airborne and caught shit with regards to Airborne and saying that, you know, their two albums are the best ACDC albums to come out since, you know, possibly 96. Uh, this White Wizard album, Flying Tigers, is better than any Maiden album that's come out since Brave New World easily. And, you know, if if I were to compare it to... You know, the other albums that have come out between Seventh Son and Brave New World, 
It's up there as well. It surpasses a lot of those Maiden albums. And if you read the reviews that I have on my site, I really you know, talk about band's originality. Uh, and, and nothing that White Wizard is doing is original, but how many bands are bringing anything original to the table? That said, when I listen to this, I know it's White Wizard. They have that distinct aspect to it, that why its voice is very distinct. And we'll see if Michael Gremio continues with the band, and there's more of that uh, within the interview. But um, it's very distinct, and the songwriting is good. The songwriting is catchy. Even if a band isn't original, if they have some type of you know, infectiousness to their music where you have you know, a chorus part stuck in your head, you have a guitar lead stuck in your head, and it makes you want to listen to that song over and over again. You know, that to me matters more than if something is original, if something has, you know, 65 million notes in a solo and has better musicianship or whatever. You know, there are a lot of songs on this album that stick with you once you listen to it. And, you know, if you're a fan of the band, you know, give the album a shot. Don't just sit there and say, oh, you know, screw it. You know, I, f- I followed Luna into, you know, Holy Grail. I followed Tyler into Holy Grail. You know, um, I'm a friend of so-and-so's, you know. As a result, I'm not going to give this album a shot. The The album is good. It's just as good as the other as the other stuff that's come out. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, John Leon is, is responsible for 100% of everything because I do think the musicians that contributed have a lot to do with it, but John is playing bass and guitar for the most part on this, and uh, and I think he was able to pull it off um, where when I originally heard that he was going to be playing guitar, I was sort of hesitant. But uh, anyway, I've been jibber-jabbering away for a good while. Um, we're going to get into part of another new track off of Flying Tigers, and then we're going to start the first part of the interview. Consider this. John Leon is going to talk about the recording of Flying Tigers. He's going to talk about all of the former members, different things that have gone on. I asked him about being on a tour, which uh, he was on a tour that was sponsored by Metal Sucks, where they've been you know, going back and forth uh, for a while. So he talks about that as well. He also talks about some interesting choices that the band had when replacing Wyatt before settling on Michael Gremio. They're going to surprise you. I don't want to mention names, but definitely, if you hang in there and listen to the entire interview, there are some things that are going to make you, uh, you know, scratch your head or you know, make your jaw drop. And, you know, again, this is John's side of things. And I'm sure that, you know, I'll receive feedback from others regarding, you know, what's right, what's wrong, whatever, you know, what happened, what didn't happen. We'll we'll take that as it comes. But let's get into another track off of Flying Tigers. Again, we'll jump right into the interview. This is actually the lead track off of the album. And and let me say this, I could play something off of the second half of the album, but I choose not to because the second half of the album arcs 
from one song into the other, and it's a concept. It's it's a concept that John developed. I feel that just playing one of those songs on their own sort of, you know, diminishes from the entire concept. And I do appreciate that he sent that PDF over because you do get a good feel for what he was trying to accomplish with that. The songs off of the first uh, half of the album stand on their own. And I think they're right up there with a lot of the material that's, you know, been on the, the other albums. And I've said that a bunch of times and it seems as if I'm beating a dead horse, but I feel, you know, 100% that this is true. Uh, let's go with the leadoff track on the album. This is Fight to the Death by White Wizard.
Uh, starting off, you brought Wyatt back into the fold to record Flying Tigers. Uh, there were some issues with Peter with his visa, um, but there was also, it seemed like there was a strong outcry from the fans to bring Wyatt back. Did the fan input have any influence whatsoever on bringing Wyatt back? I, I think that, you know, obviously it just kind of was meant to be that he would come back. I believe that the fans definitely um, had some input in regards to seeing the level of passion they had for Wyatt. And, I mean, I had that level of passion for Wyatt, too. I mean, I didn't want Wyatt to uh, to go. You know, Wyatt was not fired by me. Um, Wyatt needed some time away for his own reasons. And I think that we, we had a lot of a tough times in the early going of last year. And I think we the, the time away did us well. But Peter Peter came in and, and really was a great guy. He, he, you know, filled the void we needed at the time. And we had every intention to move forward at the time because I didn't think Wyatt would want to come back. And I, I felt like Wyatt was going to just kind of want to just stay in Florida and be close to his family. He's very close with his family. Um, he didn't really dig L.A. when he came out here and moved out here. And at the time, we didn't really think it could work with him living in Florida and us being in Los Angeles with what we wanted to do. Um, when Peter came out, he was great. I had a fantastic experience with Peter. He's an absolutely fantastic person. And um, we did a song together, obviously, as a little tribute to Dio and uh, did a tour together. And um, after that, Peter... You know, at the time, you know, when we talk, whenever you kind of mentioned, you know, the idea, hey, you know, you want to come join the band, you know, at first, obviously, it's all gung ho. Yeah, great. Let's do it. But then I think when the logistics came into reality at the, you know, end of last year, beginning of uh, this year, um, we realized basically what happened is, is Peter had talked to a couple of different people, even unbeknownst to me about the suggestion of applying for a work visa. I had thought after the tour, we were going to, you know, obviously all get together and have a meeting on it. And right when the tour ended, Peter just went down to the UK consulate, I think thinking he would just get a work visa and applied for it. And they denied it, um, <laughs> which, which came as a shock to me. And I, I didn't know, I don't know a lot about those things. You know, I'm very naive when it comes to how visas work. And really I was kind of depending on the label and everyone, the heads of state that know about that stuff to get together and obviously help Peter with the best path to be able to do that. Um, unfortunately, when he did, though, I guess one of the rules is is you can't reapply for six months or something. And okay. um, that threw a big wrench in things. And, and, you know, our producers over here, it was very unrealistic to have him track vocals elsewhere based on the plan we had in place. And unfortunately, the studio was already booked and paid for. So at that point, my producer had already allotted the time. Um, the songs were written. We needed to move forward. So obviously we were in a quandary at that point. And at the same time, Wyatt just kind of reached out. We started talking, and one thing led to another. And I, I reached out to Peter and asked his opinion on it because I obviously didn't – I definitely was not going to bring Wyatt back unless it was with Peter's blessing because he had flown over. He'd put the time in with White Wizard, and I didn't feel it was fair to just, you know – call Peter up and say, hey, Wyatt wants to come back, you know, hit the road. But Peter was, <laughs> P Peter, I think, saw that that was, you know, probably the best thing at the time. And I think just it wasn't working out, you know, for the, the visa and stuff. And I, his family, you know, Peter's also very close with his mother and his family and his girlfriend in the UK. I think he was having some, you know, a hard time with leaving them behind for a long time. And he started to want to kind of maybe go ahead and settle in and form a band there once he realized it might be kind of difficult. So really, it worked out for everybody, and everyone was fine with it when it all just, when we decided to make that move. 
Okay. Yeah, and I did get to speak to Peter, and Peter is one of the nicest people that I've ever spoken to, and he had nothing but good things to say about Fantastic. you. He's, so. a great, yeah, he's a great guy, and he, um, he, he was just an absolute pleasure to work with. Tell us a little bit about Flying Tigers. Everything that we mentioned before the interview started up, you know, there's going to be uncertainty with people that maybe were drawn towards the high-speed GTO EP and others to the Over the Top album, uh, others that may say, well, you know what, John Leon has to um, prove himself with Flying Tigers now. What do you feel this album... There's the... Go ahead. Sorry, I lost you there for a second. Um, anyway, um, yeah, as far as the, the progression of White Wizard, I mean, you know, I've, I, I didn't go into Flying Tigers feeling like, you know, there was any kind of debt to prove anything to anybody. It's, it's everything with me, with, with the writing of White Wizard, has been pretty much a natural flow, and it's been exactly kind of just what I've been feeling at the time and what's come out of me. None of it's contrived. It's just, you know, um, uh, you know I'm, I'm just pretty much a rush geek and an Iron Maiden geek that loves music that... <laughs> that finally kind of just, you know, got sick of compromising being in different bands and just decided to form this band, not caring if 10 people showed up. And I, I still write like that. I mean, I think I, I feel blessed that people have react so, reacted so positively to White Wizard. I'm, I'm really, really happy to see that something that I did just kind of on a whim to, you know, form the band I wanted to form and make the music I want has at least resonated with some people. And, you know, hopefully it will continue to do so. And, and I'm, really just focused on myself and our fans and, and anybody else that really, you know, is judging us or, or, or feeling like I, that we need to prove something to them. I really am not worried about, you know, at the end of the day, I'm very, very proud of this record. And I think it's a, it's my, it's, I'm, it's the best thing I feel I've ever done musically as an artist. And um, I feel like white wizards continuing to progress and I'm progressing as a writer. And it's uh it was a pleasure to make this record, and it was, it's definitely a very exciting time for me as far as, you know, what, what we're going to be putting out. Okay. And you're the main songwriter on this album as well? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the GTO EP was a little more collaborative. I still wrote, you know, a, a good portion of GTO, but LaRue and Luna in the beginning, we, you know, I formed that band. I pulled those guys in, and, and later I, I made, you know, get into some more details of how that came to be. But ultimately, and then with Over the Top, um, you know, I was wait, really on my own after that. I wrote three songs over the top 40 deuces and white wizard completely on my own kind of while I was trying to reform the next lineup and went and recorded those on my own, even before earache was involved, found Wyatt, you know, we, we hit it off and, and, you know, he worked with my vocal melodies and came up with his own stuff too. And we really, you know, we really had a great chemistry and we recorded those three songs and, um, that was around the time earache was interested and then they ended up signing us. And then uh, I went back and wrote the next six songs, taught them to the rest of the band. Some of the other guys had a little input on a couple of tunes, and then we uh, did that album. And then, yes, on this one, it's pretty much been um, completely me, lyrics, you know, music, uh, guitar parts, bass parts, you know, a lot of the vocal melodies and, and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, it's been, it's been a pretty, uh, pretty intense time, actually, trying to put it all together. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of parts, you know, to to do but it's it's been a, a fun challenge and it's it's been a really rewarding result okay and how does the album vary from the other two does it vary at all does it show a specific progression within the band or as you mentioned before is it just organically what came out of you when you started writing the tracks maybe a mixture of all of that i think that um you know i always set out with white wizard you know i've always loved bands that had a balance between kind of good hooks and and, and epic 
type of songwriting, you know, your longer kind of more progressive, interesting pieces, um, and then your kind of more hooky songs. That's why, you know, again, Rush, Iron Maiden, Scorpions, Judas Priest, those are all the bands, you know, Dio, Rainbow. That's all the stuff that, like, at the core is what makes me, that even made me a musician. That's what made me want to pick up an instrument. And, you know, in Zeppelin, all those bands had a certain kind of balance between the dark and the light. And I, I try to, I guess my songwriting naturally goes into those different areas just because of, you know, that's kind of who I am as a musician and, and that's what I'm influenced by. Um, I think the new record even progresses more into new territory, but still is at the core White Wizard. I mean, there's definitely songs that are more, you know, I think just catchy and upbeat and fun. But half of the album, actually the second half of the record, I did a concept piece. It's a six-song concept, and it's a lot more progressive. Hmm. It's got, you know, a little bit more of my San Francisco Bay Area thrash influences in it. I think it's got a little bit more of my, my Rush and Zeppelin influence in it. Um, and just, just at the core kind of what I really like as a musician, I listen to a lot of, you know, prog and I, I love all that stuff, man. Old Genesis and Nectar and weird, you know, obscure progressive bands from the early 70s. I, I still love a certain amount of thrash. Um, I love bands like Opeth that kind of push the genre of death metal and make all these interesting soundscapes. And I love Pink Floyd. And I think that all of those kind of influences, I allowed them to channel a little bit more with this six song piece because I wanted to have that freedom of creativity to maybe push the boundaries a little bit with what we could do. Um, but at the same time, there's plenty of songs that pick up right where over the top left off and, and even go into some other interesting areas from there. So I think I just wanted to kind of like take the rules down a little bit and, you know, not, not even really worry about anything and just allow all my influences to flow through me even more and see what would come out of me, you know? Okay. And roughly how long did it take for you to put all the material together? You know, it, it came together really throughout last summer and, 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 and autumn. Um, a lot of the lyrics were written on all my flights back and forth to the UK <laughs> um, on the way to download, on the way to the UK tour. Pretty much, I'd say 90% of the lyrics were really written on 10-hour flights. Um, and then the musical pieces were written with me with my Flying V and, uh, and, uh, and my little... Uh, recorder i have at home i've actually a lot of the album was put together on the iphone on that little voice memo uh um <laughs> they have a little feature on the iphone it's fantastic it's basically like having a micro cassette recorder in your iphone right and um i've always written like that ideas come very spontaneously sometimes either through just jamming by myself or riffs come into my head while i'm laying in bed at 4 a.m and i gotta pop up and you know figure it all out <laughs> and usually a song will come out of those spontaneous moments you know one riff turns into a whole verse chorus bridge concept and then usually later i'll write the vocal melodies and lyric ideas on top of those okay and you decided to work with the same producer you have with the last two releases with uh ralph patlin um what does he bring to the table that you decide to continuously go back to him with all of the band's releases well, Ralph's just a fantastic producer, and he's probably the most gifted musician and has the most gifted ear I've ever come across as an artist. I mean, he's, uh, he's a pleasure to work with, and he, he just knows, you know, it's like a good example is when I write the record, I probably end up with the vocal melodies. You know, I, I write all the vocal melodies, but about 75% of what I write gets used. That final 20, 25% are Ralph's just amazing suggestions. He's got a great <laughs> ear for what we should do to take the take some of these parts to the next level. And um, 
he's a great mentor for me. And, you know, he really, when, when High Speed GTO, when we tracked that, we actually didn't track that with Ralph. We tracked that with a friend of, uh, of Tyler and James Luna's. And he kind of attempted to mix it. It didn't go real well. And um, Ralph kind of came in and, and, and cut a deal. And we sent him the, uh, the seven songs and he mixed it in one night. As you hear High Speed GTO, huh. he mixed that in about 15 hours. As you hear it now, released by Eric. Um, he, he did that in the night, man, and, and, and cut a really good deal to do it and kind of saved the thing. And I, it just, it's one of those things I worked with him on a record before and I feel very comfortable. And then of course it just seemed natural to go to him for over the top. And, and those three songs that I did, you know, in between lineup two and lineup one, which were over the top 40 deuces in the title or in the song white wizard, you know, that we call that in the band. Those songs, right. I, I recorded all the guitars on those songs. I went there basically with our drummer at the time and tracked those songs completely with Ralph. And, um, you know, it was just a natural thing. I drove him all the way to Arizona. He's in Phoenix to do it with him. Um, that's how much I believed in him. And the results uh, spoke for themselves. I thought those three songs just between me writing, Ralph producing, and Wyatt singing, we saw we had kind of a magic there between those three elements working together. And um and it's it's just naturally progressed from there, and I think everything that's been done since has been fantastic. And if something's broke, why you know why try to fix it? I mean, it's it's true. Or not, or sorry, not broke. Why try to fix it? I think it's um right. It's it's completely working on all levels, you know, as far as that goes. And, and naturally, on this record, that progression continued to um, continued to to flourish, and it's it's just an evidence of of how. I've always said the best bands, Rush, Maiden, you name it, they always had a really great producer they built a relationship with, whether it was Martin Birch, Terry Brown, Judas Priest with Tom Allen. Um, all of those, those producers you know, and the artists work together and they get better as they go and they get to know each other and those chemistries get built up. And I think it's really vital that you, your producer is pretty much your fifth or sixth guy. Um, and it's a really important thing, I think, for any great band to make great records, to have that producer that you build a chemistry with. Okay. Funny you mention uh, Martin Birch, but not uh, Kevin Shirley. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Later Maiden is still great. And I think Kevin Shirley actually did one of my favorite Rush comeback albums, Counterparts. Um, Very true, got, yeah. Yeah, he got Rush to kind of get back down to basics and kind of inspired what their sound would kind of become. And um, he's, a, he's a cool producer as well. But obviously, let's, I mean, the, those first seven Maiden albums are, are pretty much, uh, you know, staple as far as being about some of the most magical metal records ever recorded as well as heaven and hell uh you know and and some of the other stuff that martin birch did with deep purple etc i mean you're talking about a a body of work that is um you know i think he really had a lot to do with really all three of those bands deep purple um black sabbath dio era and iron maiden really you know with them sounding the way they did you know fantastic producer with the Maiden albums, the one thing that always jumps out to me is it sounds like Nico McBrain is in the room with you. Those drums sound so alive on all the albums that that he produced for them. It's just outrageous. And I don't think anyone else has really been able to capture that type of a sound. And you hear a lot of people talk about how you know the studio influences uh how the album sounds or you know the temperature or this or that which it does but it's just interesting that martin with all the years that uh he worked with maiden and even i should say with clive burn the band as well you know those drums just sounded so alive every time you heard it and you know obviously there wasn't any type of mutt lang type um you know, almost overproduction being done to the uh, 
to the to the drums on those albums. Yeah, I agree. Listen and listen to the precursor Mob Rules, man. I mean, the drums, those drums on that album, I think that's an underrated record and those the drums are just in your face on that too, man. Like a lot of his recordings even with Deep Purple back in the day, I've always said Martin Birch's uh, strong point was really drums and bass, the rhythm section. He was the yeah. guy to me that was able to lay a foundation like nobody else and and just you know, Terry Brown from Rush kind of was pretty good at that, too. Those two guys, for me, were like the epitome of recording bass, guitar, and drums, you know, and really setting a precedent, really. Yeah, I agree. Um, as far as the recording is concerned, you started recording the album earlier this year, and you wrapped it up, um, what, about a month ago? Uh, so basically, I went to the studio mid-January to Ralph's studio. Um, we tracked all the drums and bass. Giovanni and I, then I tracked all the electric guitars. Um, Ralph made a couple cameos on electric guitar as well, and then Wyatt flew in and did the vocals. We finished that towards the end of February, and then uh, Ralph mixed it, and I think he got done about a month ago, and that's pretty much where we're at as far as the record being uh, completed. Okay, and you guys already have a release date, I'm assuming? Um, yeah, I think, you know, we originally were shooting for June, but it's looking like it's going to take longer. We're still waiting on the cover art. Um, and the cover art sketches are fantastic, so we're kind of waiting to make sure that ends up as perfect as it can be, and uh, some other layout stuff. So it's probably going to be more of a late summer thing. I don't think they've got an etched in stone uh, rescheduled release date, but um, it took Ralph a little longer. He had some stuff come up as well, and so there's a little bit of delays, but we should be seeing this coming out probably late summer, it looks to me. Okay, and... Um... As far as the gear is concerned uh, that was used on the album, you mentioned your Flying V. Your Flying V, if I remember correctly, from other interviews, is a Hamer, correct? Um, actually, the, the, the Flying V is an electric guitar. I write everything on guitar. My bass is a Hamer that I play live. That's kind of a white okay. floor bass, just like right. Rick Savage played in the Pyromania video. If you ever watched that, yeah. that's like the that era video. That's what he's playing. Same exact Hamer Blitz bass from like 83. And um, okay. I, I just love that bass live. And then the studio instruments that I use are a white flying V, which you'll see in the over-the-top video, actually. It's the guitar the wizard is holding when he's battling the sorcerer. Um, okay. That white flying V guitar, that's the one that uh, I tracked all three songs. You know, those first three songs and over-the-top I mentioned were done with that through a Sildonal SLO amp. And uh, the, the rest of the songs and over-the-top I had, Eric tracked the other six songs I had him uh, use that guitar on a good portion of them. And then, of course, it was used for all the rhythm tracks on this record. And then I've got a really cool Les Paul that I think almost every lead on every White Wizard release has been played or played on, um, <laughs> even James LaRue and all that. And everyone's pretty much played that guitar. It's just got a really cool sound. And uh, that's pretty much what's been used. And then I have a Fender P bass that I use in the studio. That's um, kind of, a you know, my baby, but it's a studio bass. I don't, I don't bring it out live. Okay, and do you have anything modified on any of those? Are the pickups all um, uh, the standard pickups that come from the factory, or do you have any type of uh, modifications applied to uh, your guitars? Or to um, your they're, gear? All kind of, they're all kind of special instruments, but I never did any modifications. They're like I got them. The, the, the Les Paul is actually what you would call a... Um, Jimmy Page Les Paul. It's the second version of what Gibson put out when they actually took Jimmy's 59 Les Paul, took it apart, okay. he actually gave it to them, and they made 860 re re reproductions down to the pickups. You know, they, they call them the Jimmy Page Burst Buckers. They have a real hot 
really cool kind of uh, output to them. And they just made, in my opinion, like the coolest Les Paul ever. And it's just got an amazing sound. It's just brilliant. And then the, the, the Flying V, I actually bought that in this music store in Los Angeles. I just walked in one day and it was hanging on, you know, one of those things, just a freak thing. It was just hanging there on a consignment or something. And it looked like the guy had made some modifications to it. I'm sure he swapped the pickups, tuners. It's got some gold hardware. It looks really cool. And I plugged it in, man, and it was just magic. It was just metal rhythm guitar. It was just Rudolph Shanker, you know, Randy Rhodes. <laughs> it just had that vibe to it, man. It had a certain mojo, and I just was getting inspired, and riffs were coming out of me when I played it, and that's always a good sign. You know, yeah. if you start writing cool riffs when you pick up a guitar, then you know there's something about it that's working. And, uh... So I, I bought it, man. I sold something to get it. I instantly I put it on hold and I got it. And pretty much the week after I bought that guitar, I wrote the song over the top. And I bought that guitar right in <laughs> lineup one split. And I was kind of looking to get inspired and kind of going through a rough time. And, and literally I wrote over the top that next week right on that guitar and some of the beginnings of the other two songs as well. And really the whole over the top record and the entire record coming out now has pretty much been written on that guitar. So it's got like kind of a, a little magic mojo in it you know and um and then my bass is the, the p bass is uh actually a reproduction that the fender custom shop did of a 1961 precision bass based off of a famous session player named pino paladino who currently plays with the who right um, and they, they also took his bass and just again it was just one of those ones that just had a certain magic and mojo to it i had to sell some stuff to get it about four or five years ago but it just was so incredible it's the still the best P bass I've ever played vintage or otherwise. It's just magic and it has that nice leathery sound that just works great in the studio. And, you know, songs like high speed GTO over the top, all those bass lines were recorded with that bass and the hammer bass and the live bass is, you know, it's, it's a workhorse, man. It's been beat to hell. It sounds great. It's got a good mid range. It just sits in the mix good live. And I love Explorer basses. They look cool. It's really, you know, just over the top looking and huge and crazy and, it just works for live. I, I don't want to bring any of my really nice instruments on the road. I prefer to keep those in the studio because you get out there, man, you get on planes, you get in tour, but stuff gets thrown around. You just want to bring kind of your beater instruments on the road if you can help it, unless you're, you know, like rich and you can afford like Steve Howe from Yes and like get your guitar in its own seat <laughs> on the plane, you know, then you can right. bring your nice vintage instrument with you. But, you know, it seems to work. You know, I've got my live bass and then all the other ones are pretty much the studio instruments, you know, and the writing instruments. Okay. And uh, since you made the uh, Rick Savage uh, reference, uh, you're not going to be switching over to Scarab in the future, are you? You know, funnily enough, I actually bought one a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> I bought a white Scarab just like, because I was curious, but I learned really quick. I don't like, I've learned over the years that I don't like active pickups anymore. I'm a big passive pickups guy that's a whole other tech talk thing but um i just like the way passive pickups react when you become a better player and you dig in and you realize so much tones in your fingers you uh you start to appreciate passive pickups more i think that's why getty went back to jazz bases um but i i think uh, that scarab bass actually ended up getting sold to the guy in icarus witch um huh. he uh he called me up and i sold it to him and i i'm not sure if he still has it um but yeah, you know, it's like a little community. I was talking to the guy in Cauldron a little while ago, and he's like, I think I ended up with a bass of yours, and then we figured out it wasn't, but it was a different bass. The guy in Icarus Witch had sold him. So, you know, we're all, it's all a small community of bass players out there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, 
As far as your new guitarist, uh, Louis Stevens, is concerned, uh, does he play on this album at all, or is he just going to be playing with the band in a live environment? No, actually what happened, you know, once we got off tour, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff to teach Lewis, and Lewis was supposed to get back pretty quickly from Wales. His family's in Wales, and he went back home after the tour. And after a while, he just wasn't getting back, and, you know, just one thing led to another. And, you know, the funny thing with Lewis is he, you know, he came over here, and he had kind of a place to stay with a, with a woman that was kind of putting him up, and I guess they had a little bit of a falling out, and he all of a sudden didn't have his place to stay. There was some logistical stuff, and he needed more time to kind of get himself together because he's also doing Ibiza, um, and we're kind of helping to sponsor on, et cetera, and it does take time, obviously. And again, studio was booked. Every Everybody knew about the dates months in advance, and unfortunately he had some issues come up where he wasn't able to get back in time. And, you know, I tracked three of the songs on Over the Top, and I think between the record label and my management and everyone, everyone was like, well, we can't push the dates back, so can you handle it, John? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> you know, one more thing to do. Yeah, great. I'll, I'll do all the guitars, too. So in the end, I'm kind of glad I did. It was kind of a, um, you know, it's kind of a cool thing, at least for once. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. It's a lot to take on to be one person when you're, you know, doing so much in the creative process as well. Because at the same time, I'm sitting there crash-coursing all of the lyrics and vocal melodies on demos for Wyatt and sending them to him, you know. So I'm right. literally tracking guitars by day, and by night till 3 a.m., I'm basically recording demos for Wyatt and sending them, emailing them to Florida so he can crash-course these tunes and come in and record them. I mean, it was an amazing crunch, actually, that we had to work in when you think about it, because, you know, the studio dates were booked, and all of a sudden, you know, Peter goes down, and then we're having issues with Lewis getting over from Europe, and... You know, I've got studio dates booked that start January 15th, and, you know, thank God that really Wyatt reached out and we uh, were able to uh, to do what we could when we did. And it, it's actually been a great thing, though. You know, it's funny sometimes how things can, you know, when you when you have something kind of, you know, split up like that for a bit and you have some turmoil, it's a really good feeling to see when you learn from that turmoil and when two people can come back together and be stronger for it, you know. Relationships happen like that sometimes. You might split up with somebody, but you learn a lot from the experience. You come together and you're stronger after the fact. I really feel like that's what's happened with this. And through all that adversity and pressure, we ended up with a really cool record. And I, I think the relationship with Wyatt is very strong. We are all on the same page now and we're really focused. And Lewis is still, you know, finishing up his visa and trying to get over for the Forbidden Tour. And, uh, you know, we've got to stand in for Chad. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but Chad, our other guitar player... <laughs> He, uh, his, his, his wife and him, um, she got pregnant last summer and, right. uh, and had a, had a, had a baby. So he's been over in the UK with her. Ironically enough, I've got, you know, another guy over in the UK. Um, he's, uh, you know, kind of just with her getting on their feet, he's trying to get back to LA and get back in the band. And we've left that spot open for him. That's why we toured as a four piece for a while. Um, while he kind of gets on his feet and, you know, gets through that process and hopefully he can get back in the band. We've kind of given him some time to, uh, go through that process and, you know, get back to Los Angeles so they can get on their feet. And, uh, you know, we really like Chad, so we're trying to kind of wait it out and hope he can get back in the band as soon as possible. Okay. So for this Forbidden Tour, uh, what will the lineup look like? You know, it's looking like Chad wanted to join us, but he's. it looks like he's not going to probably be able to come back in. So we've got a guy uh, coming in um, locally, a guy named Corey, fantastic guitar player. We'll have some info up on him soon. We're still in rehearsals. And uh, Lewis is working on getting over here to get over and uh, enjoy the tour as well. So hopefully we'll be going as a five-piece. If not, we'll be going as a four-piece. It really depends on, 
you know, on those situations and when guys can kind of get here and get it together. You know, at the end of the day, I can only do so much, and I'm trying to leave, you know, the door open for obviously everybody um, in this band. I mean, the only guy that's ever been fired from over the top was Eric, and, and, and you know, everyone else, this, this band is pretty much still a part of this band and still welcome to be in this band. It's not being Chad, obviously, the other member that toured with us and, and was a, a part of that live lineup. Um, but obviously, you know, he's got to be able to get back to Los Angeles and, you know, he's got to be able to get on his feet and make it happen. You know, we can't really, we can only do so much. You know, I know people sometimes give us hell about lineup changes, but I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, kind of what leads to some of those things. And that a lot of it really isn't the band's fault at all. A lot of it has to do, even though there's a couple of guys out there, you know, <laughs> you know, that are angry and saying a bunch of stuff. And it's, it's really not that for the most part, though, with most of the lineup changes. It's really just been a matter of, um, you know, a lot of circumstances and a lot of different things happening that have kind of caused things to go that way. But um, at the core, you know, Wyatt, Gio, and I are, you know, good to go. Um, and we've got everyone's, you know, into it, committed to it. It's just a matter of, you know, life stuff, and hopefully people can get it together. I think another thing to really point out is, you know, all these bands, us, all these, you know, new wave of traditional heavy metal bands that are out doing this, um, we're not really making any money, you know, I mean, we're, we're right. going out there for guarantees of 150, 200 bucks a night with gas being about four bucks a gallon. I just did the gas math for the forbidden tour. It's going to be brutal. We're just going to barely bake break even on our guarantees just on that alone. And then you sell merch and hope you end up ahead of the game enough to where everyone ends up with some money in their pocket. And, um, you're, you're not, we're not out there making a ton of dough. So when that's the case, um, it, it makes things a little difficult when guys are in situations like having a child, you know, and, and they can't really, you know, it's not like they can come and be guaranteed they're going to make two grand or three grand when they come on the road, as we, we all have found out um, the hard way. I think when you right. first go into signing a record deal, I think a lot of people naively think that they're, you know, going to make all this money, and then you realize, wow, there's really, you know, <laughs> not as much money in this as I thought there was. You know, you have to really love what you're doing. And I mean, over time, if you put the work in, I think if you can build a career of two or three records and you can, you know, build the fan base, I think there is money in it. But I think the early going is a lot harder than you think going into what it's going to be, you know. And, right. Uh, that's been a wake-up call for all of us. I mean, I think we've learned a lot in the last year, year and a half alone, just of how this all works and, you know, what to expect. And, you know, it's one of those things you kind of got to get past that so you can kind of refocus and go, okay, well, you know, I mean, I walked away from a career where I was making a lot of money and, very successful and happy to do this full time. And it's a pretty big adjustment, man. <laughs> you know, when you're, you're going, wow, okay, well now I'm going to have to, you know, I can only afford, you know, 150 bucks a month for food. And you have to budget yourself very differently when you're, there's so much sacrifice in being an artist, you know, there just really is. And I think that's, uh, it's something that at the same time though, I think in the end, if you succeed at it, I think it'll be a lot more, um, you know, obviously gratification down the road that you did it your way and that you, you know, never compromised or sold out, you know. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I have that conversation with a lot of bands over here in Spain who think that if you're a U.S. artist and you're signed to a U.S. label, or a U.K. label for that matter, uh, that you're automatically making tons of money. And I always tell them, no, you know, and unfortunately, you guys got to realize that you know, all facets of metal. There's maybe five bands that are making a tremendous amount of money. Uh, everyone else oh, yeah. really has to do everything that you just said, you know. And um, there was a band that was here not too long ago, a um, uh, a band from Metal Blade, excuse me. And I was telling someone a story how they were thrilled about the merch that they made that night. 
because uh, that meant that that night they could stay in a hotel and they could actually pay for all their gas to the next show. And, you know, the person I was having this conversation with was astonished. And I said, well, if you want to do this full time, that's what you have ahead of you. So. Pretty much, you know. I'll tell you a funny story. What was my reality check to that? When I was a when I was a kid, you know, growing up in the San Francisco thrash scene, I'd go see all these bands. You automatically, as a kid, I think, think that any band that's signed is rich. You know, any band that's got right. a record out or was on MTV, whatever, they must be rich. And I remember, you know, in the '90s, I was, you know, in San Francisco, and I met Alex Skolnick. He was playing in kind of a local thing called the Skull Patrol. You know. And, um, you know, really nice guy, really humble down to earth. It was really exciting for me because he was such a huge influence. And um, I just remember when he came around to get his gear and he was in this little Toyota Corolla, you know. And I was, it was kind of, kind of dawned on me. I'm like, wow, maybe, maybe you know, you just kind of realize the thrash bands didn't make all the money you thought they did. You know, it's like, whoa, wait a second. These guys aren't rich, you know. They're, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, they, they, yeah. they didn't make the money you thought they did. And I think that was one of the first reality checks. And I agree, unless you're, you know, a band that, you know, like Metallica or Iron Maiden or some of these bands, but even then, the first few albums, I don't think they were making as much money as you thought. I think they just finally were able to get really lucky and break through, and their timing was really good, and they, they managed to get to a point where they were making it really profitable. But, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot of work, and I, I actually would advise a lot of, you know, new bands to, you know, definitely, you know, if, if you can ever get the capital together, if you can ever get 10, 15, 20 grand together, borrow it from your parents, save it up, if there's any way you can actually start a band on your own without having to depend on record labels to get involved and actually can, you know, get a distribution deal and put your music out there, um, you'll probably actually make some money. I think part of the problem is, you know, record deals aren't really conducive to bands making much money. They're just kind of selling the glory of, you know, pushing your band out there and you going and doing it. Um, no diss to record labels, but I think that a lot of artists do in the beginning, um, end up in a bad place. But the problem is a lot of artists don't have the capital to make their first release and get them out there and push themselves. They need a record label to do so. So the record deals they sell kind of end up being uh, a lot more advantageous to the record companies. And you end up, you know, um, one of the tough things about being an artist, the, the toughest thing to swallow for me um, is on a lot of, this is, I guess, been going on forever because I've asked tons of, you know, managers and people about this. Uh, basically, the way record deals work is, you know, on every CD you sell, there's a, an amount that you're allotted. It's about probably about a buck twenty-five. You know, comes to that your band makes per CD sold, um, right. and the record label, you know, gets the rest of the profit. But anything that the record label spends money on for your band, you know, whatever it is, if it's you know they they spend twenty grand on flying you around, making a video, whatever, that's all recoupable. But the sad thing is, is it's recoupable out of that buck twenty-five you make. It doesn't come out of the remaining profit the record label makes. So right. you're you're paying you you're paying back um, you know everything that they spend just out of that measly little buck twenty five that's allotted to you and they're still able to make that you know four or five bucks so for the record labels obviously it is a better deal but you kind of got to hang through it and you got to go you know what you know in, in the grand scheme of things you know you do have someone that can push your band and help make it grow and if you put the work in you hope in four or five years you'll you'll reap a reward from that but um yeah it's definitely something that you know you have to wrap your head around as a musician and just as a person who's, you know, maybe expecting one thing. And then when the reality sets in, you go, wow, this is, um, this is a lot different than I thought. And I think, you know, I think even Wyatt had to come to that conclusion when he went back to Florida for a bit and realized, you know, we think we all did, you know, it's like, okay, well, are we still committed to this now that we know realistically what we're in for, you know, um, can we, can we focus on this and do this for two or three years and go out and struggle? Cause I'll tell you, man, 
it takes a lot of constitution to go out there and be in a van with, you know, I, I've always said a, a band is like a marriage of three or four or five people. There's a lot of egos to balance. There's a lot of different personality dynamics. And um, to get out there and do that for months on end, not making much money. Um, yes, the shows are fantastic and the fans keep you going in the rush of playing the music. Um, and one thing that's good about White Wizard is I think we're all doing exactly what we wanted to do. I think if we were compromising ourselves in any way, we probably wouldn't be able to hang through it, you know. Um, but in the end, that's, that's what keeps us going, I think, is just the fans and the love of the music. And hopefully we can, you know, keep it up until we can, you know, actually get to a point where everybody can be making, you know, two, three grand a month when we go on the road and actually say, hey, you know, I can pay my rent now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I think that was, my, Michael from Opeth made an interesting statement. I think he said, when did you realize you'd finally had success? I think he said when he could finally, you know, um, buy groceries from, you know, from, from making money with the band, you know. Um, it's, it's true, you know, like when you actually can see net profits to where you can actually, um, do something other than putting it back into the band, um, to the point where, you know, you can actually maybe even live your life off of it. I think is a, that's, that's the dream of everybody. I think just to be able to live your life and make 30, 40, 50 K a year doing this is pretty much the, uh, the pinnacle of what you can hope for these days, you know? Gotcha. Okay. And that's great that you went through all that because again, there are so many people that ask me, about what it's really like to be, you know, on a on a known label and, you know, living the lifestyle of being a musician and trying to make it. So, um, one of the cool things that I like about being able to interview people and putting out podcasts is that you're able to capture someone's voice, their inflection, and, you know, there isn't a writer who's trying to get some type of juicy gossip and trying to just promote himself. Do you feel that you've been portrayed unfairly by the people on the internet, by the media, and by certain, you know, aspects of um, of the metal community? You know, I mean, I try not to take too much of it to heart. I mean, I know that people go off what they uh, what they hear, and I also, you know, of course, you know, every. Every writer has his own motivations and intentions, obviously. I think, I think turmoil, you know, one thing about America, as you know, I mean, it's in it, it, just even the Western world in general, is it, a lot of writers and magazines and everything, you know, they, they make themselves off of people's turmoil. I think turmoil sells. And, you know, whether it's actors, artists at the highest level or the lowest level, anytime there's any kind of, you know, any kind of, even if it's hearsay, it doesn't matter. If it makes a juicy story or, it, you know, makes things interesting, people love to propagate it. And I think that uh, the same thing with, um, with uh, you know, just I think in general with the whole band rivalry thing between us and Holy Grail, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people on both camps as far as the business end of things that thinks it's great because it, you know, obviously helps press. It's free press, you know. Um, right. And anytime, you know, that, that's what my PR guy always tries to convince me. Oh, John, but, you know, everyone's hearing about it. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, great, okay. You know, <laughs> everyone's throwing me under the bus and say all these bad things. But, hey, what the hell? You know, it's, it's, uh, it is what it is. And at the end of the day, man, you know, I know, you know, as I said earlier, it's all hearsay. I know at the core what really happened between me and certain members, and they do too. And whatever they want to say, whatever their motivation is, you know, it's one of those things, man, you got to take it with a grain of salt, and you can't let it eats you up to the point where you get so negative and pissed off that you lose sight of why you're really doing this. I mean, man, I didn't form this band for the reason just to play the music I love. And anything that's happened besides that, you know, one, one example I'll give is this. You know, everyone's got some, an ex-girlfriend or an ex-wife or maybe even several or a couple. 
that may at the end of their relationship or, you know, even forever, uh, maybe, you know, if, if she was giving her opinion of you after that relationship, would you, you have to ask yourself, would you think she is giving a fair and balanced opinion of you? Is she giving the entire reason why the relationship broke up? Um, and, you know, of course not. She's, she's basically angry, spiteful, you know, and it's the same thing with a band. You're, you're talking it's the same thing as a marriage between two or three or four guys as it is in a marriage with a, a woman that you may have been with. Um, I think that's the best way I can equate it is what people are hearing also is, you know, I think the equivalent of that, you know, the equivalent of the angry ex-wife basically having nothing good to say, spinning it in every way she possibly can, and without, of course, ever taking blame for one thing she may have done to, you know, obviously cause that relationship to, you know, come to its end. So I kind of take it with a grain of salt with a sense of humor and kind of look at it from that perspective and go, you know, whatever. <laughs> Let's get back to the music. That's all that matters to me. Right. Okay. And uh, one of the sites that you actually had some issues with in the past was Metal Sucks. And they're actually sponsoring that Forbidden Tour that you're on. Um, was there any deal where they came to you and wanted to make amends or, or vice versa? Or does them sponsoring the tour have absolutely nothing to do with the band's involvement? Yeah, no, it has nothing to do with anything. I mean, I, I, I don't mind. I've got no, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, I, it's, it's one of those things I've completely even really think about it like you know metal sucks they're doing what they do um they're one of those websites that i feel is kind of like you know they, they they remind me of the national Enquirer of metal you know they they like to propagate any story and sometimes any kind of controversial thing that comes up you know it's you know it, it's for some people it's fun and that's cool you know at the end of the day man it's like whatever gets people you know going is fine i think at the end of the day like i said all i really care about is our fans and the fact is i get to go out with one of the the biggest influences on me as a kid, forbidden. I mean, you're talking about a childhood influence that I can't even begin to describe, like how big of an influence that band had on me when I first saw them, man. My eyes were, you know, wide open and just like, wow, who the hell is this band? I remember we went to see Death Angel at the Stone in San Francisco. You know, we were just little junior high kids, you know, and we went in and we didn't even know who those guys were. We just were, you know, Death Angel, wow, you know. And Forbidden just blew them off the stage, man. I mean, their stage presence, they just were unbelievable. Their songs, their, their technical ability. Russ's voice back then was just in its prime, and he just he was like Rob Halford. We're like, who are these guys, you know? And, of course, I bought everything they ever made. Um, I mean, I worshipped those guys when I was a kid. So to be able to go out on tour with them right now, like, I don't care who's sponsoring it, man. Like, <laughs> I'm going out with Forbidden, you know? It doesn't even matter to me. All that other stuff, man, that's all petty and really doesn't mean anything. You know, what, what means everything is that, you know, if I could talk to my 11-year-old self right now, you know, and, and tell him, hey, you're <laughs> going to be torn with forbidden, you know, that's all that matters, man. All this other stuff, you know, it's a bunch of crap. I mean, it's, it's, that's what's awesome. I mean, it's, it's a blessing to be able to even do that. And even if it all ends afterwards, you know, big deal. And, and hopefully not. And hopefully we'll continue to move on the next two, three years and get to do a couple more records and hopefully more fans will come on board. And if they do, great. I mean, I'll do it as long as I can still stand. You know, that's the whole reason I'm doing this. There's no other reason. I didn't get into this for, for money. I didn't get into it for, for, for girls. I didn't, none of those things, man. It's, I'm, I'm, again, I'm just, I'm a, I was the guy that was in my room for two years straight when I discovered Rush air basing and, you know, smoking <laughs> weed and just, I didn't do anything but listen to Rush. You know, <laughs> like, I was, I was that guy. You know, I was that guy at the party that always had the Rush album, you know. 
They're like, Sean, why don't you bring something different? You know, why don't you bring some, you know, I always go to a party. I have no, but you have to hear this. You don't understand. This is the greatest thing ever, you know? Um, <laughs> I was that rush geek, you know, that, that was me. And, and, and it's, it's never left me, you know, and at the core, that's the whole reason I went and bought my first bass guitar was Getty Lee, man. I mean, exit stage left watching that over and over and, and, and live after death to a point too. I had a thing for Maiden, but Rush really was like the, that was the big push, man. When I, when I discovered Rush on a really stoned weekend, this guy, when we went to this house, it's a great story. I went to this guy's house in Lake Tahoe and he had this huge, like $20,000 stereo system. And we were, you know, like harvesting all this weed. We were like, you know, a friend of mine had harvested some weed and we went up to like manicure it. And we were all excited, you know, a bunch of stoners. And, um, this guy basically put on the album Permanent Waves by Rush, and I'd never even really heard Rush. I think I heard Tom Sawyer and liked the song, but I never really knew who Rush was. I was really young. And right. um, I'll just never forget listening to that record in the middle of that guy's living room floor. I mean, it was a perfect storm of, like, being the most stoned I've ever been in my life, you know? <laughs> and I kind of had this, like, outer body experience, man. And it was like, I went and bought everything Rush ever made after that weekend, and I just they became my gods. I mean, I literally was just like, you know, in the church of rush forever. And it just never left me. That's what made me become a musician. Cool. Very cool. Awesome story. And that, I mean, I think everyone has a moment like that where it's the, you know, quintessential eye opening and, you know, that makes them want to, you know, in your case, pick up a bass or become a singer or, or whatever. So very cool.
go, a little Octane Gypsy coming off of the High Speed GTO EP. And um, like I mentioned previously, we're segmenting this into three separate parts. And uh, this is going to be the end of the first part because each part is, is about an hour long. So I think it would be sort of rough to release a three-hour podcast. So it's episode 40... Um, Uh, sort of A, B, and C type of a deal here. And uh, this actually coincides with the second anniversary of me starting up the Fusion Sonica podcast, which is the first part, excuse me, podcast that I started up. And uh, if you're interested in that, it's FusionSonica.com. It is all in Spanish. still have hard rock and metal in all types of languages. Um, We also have not only Mars Attacks at MarsAttacksRadio.com, we also have the Victor M. Ruiz podcast, which all three podcasts have been put aside with the birth of my son, so we're starting everything up with that, starting everything back up with that now, so uh, uh, we're adding content to all three sites currently, and uh, that's pretty much it. We're going to wrap this part up. Let's play another track off of Over the Top. We started with a track off of Over the Top. Let's end with a track off of Over the Top. Let's go with 40 Deuces. See you in part two. (laughs) 